Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm having a fantastic conversation with Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan and I connected through his podcast. We've had multiple conversations and I knew he had so much more depth to a story than what I knew originally. And the more I learned, the more I was like, yeah, we definitely have to have you on the show. So I'm thrilled to have him here with you today. Coach John is a weight loss coach and emotional eating expert who has lost over 100 pounds. From nanotechnology research to Navy Marine engineer to globe-trotting nomad, Coach John spent most of his life running from his true calling until one question changed his life. Now he's on a mission to help others lose weight for good and leave the BS diets in the rearview mirror. With Freedom Nutrition Coaching... He marries the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection to create life-changing transformations with his clients. Coach John is also the host of the Between the Before and After, a podcast that shares inspiring real-life stories of remarkable people overcoming significant adversity in their life. Obviously, we had a lot in common. So John's story we talk about in this episode today And it is, it's actually unbelievable as you start to connect the dots. He has a very traumatic experience many years ago that he shares and how it led him down a path of exploring and understanding his big emotions, how it led him to a series of weight fluctuations and a place of losing a hundred pounds. And most importantly, learning how to practice self-compassion and love towards himself. All of these lessons have led him to do the work he's here to do and the impact that he is creating with his own clients and with others that he crosses paths with. We dive into so much about the power of our stories, our big emotions, trauma, how connected we are by our experiences and how our stories can give others hope that it is possible to ultimately change our stories. I love this conversation. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to the show today, John. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's it's summer. Um, I got a kid on the way, my second one. Um, hopefully my wife doesn't go into labor at the time of recording. I don't think it'll happen, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an important thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. She's 30, 34 and a half weeks. So okay. but lots lots of activity where it's like, hmm, might mm-hmm. happen soon. So um it's I'm I'm actually really excited to do the whole parenthood thing like a second time because my my toddler is he's two and a half and it's gone so fast that I'm like, dang, I want to do that again. It, it goes. It's I still remember being in that time and thinking like people say it goes by so fast and you think does it really and it does it does. It's like my son will be turning 26 and then my other one will be turning 25 this year and it's like how does it go that fast but it does go by fast. 
Yeah. I mean, I hear that and people say, you know, every stage has something like you appreciate about it, but I have this feeling that like, this is like one of those peak experiences in life. Uh, like I'm, I'm an older dad, I'm 41. And so watching like my son grow and develop for me is super fascinating um, because I have such an interest in behavioral psychology anyways now. Um, and just there's so much that's happened in the first two years from like this helpless little potato that like poops and sleeps to like this functioning human being with an opinion who likes jokes and watching yeah. his little brain figure out jokes is amazing. It's like the things that we just take for granted that we understand as adults when he goes like, this is not just like an action. This is, this is a joke where I'm deliberately trying to make you laugh and trick you. Yeah. Uh, it's, this is cool. <laughs> it is fun to watch them as they grow. And, and I think I think you're right. I think there's something to it when you are older and are just maybe have a little bit different inquisitive mind and you're looking at things mm -hmm. because of your background. You said you have a background in behavioral psychology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, originally, actually, uh, marketing psychology. So a, a strange or an oddball blend of, of education. Um, I started as like studying music and then I realized I didn't want to go into music education. And I wasn't going to become a famous producer, like it just probably wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so then I dove into chemistry, uh, nanotechnology research. Um, and then for some reason through like marketing psychology in there, because I was like, well, this seems interesting and it's an easy path to sort of get into psychology. Um, and so I, I have a really kind of oddball degree. It's like a bachelor of arts in general studies, which <laughs> like fits me so perfectly. Um given what I know about myself now, what we talked, which is before you record, but uh, yeah, that that's kind of where, where I'm at. I know you've got a lot of different parts of your background and history and things that have brought you here. And I know there's a lot of different stories that you've walked through. Can you take us back to, you know, which one I'm referring to. Can you take us back to, um, there was a couple of major turning points in your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there was the, the South African incident, I'll call it that. Um, and we can go to detail. I don't mind, um, sharing about it, but, uh, so maybe I'll, I'll rewind like one step back. So from university, I jumped over to the Navy and took up Marine engineering. Um, did that for about three years, took a year's leave of absence, went and lived in Australia, got married, came back with a wife, did three more years in the Navy and then decided, nope, don't want to do this anymore. And so my wife and I, um, packed everything to a storage unit, hopped on a plane and took a flight to Mexico. And I remember, you know, we were both kind of looking at each other, like, are we nuts? Like, why are, like, people don't do this where we saved up a bunch of money. We could have bought a house and instead we're like, nah, let's travel. <laughs> and so we did. And it started this sort of uh, multi-year globe trotting adventure where we went to a lot of different places all over the globe. One of those places being South Africa. And uh, we, we met a guy in Mexico who was South African who came to live with us when we were in Poland and living there and then uh, invited us to come down to South, South Africa to work with his parents' nonprofit initiative that was working with underprivileged youth, which, which we did. And so um, it was only about two weeks after getting there that we, we were working out on this nature reserve. Um, it was a really peaceful, beautiful setting. Um, you know, lots of wildlife, plenty of monkeys, some rhinos, giraffes, that kind of thing. Like it was yeah, really, really cool place. But one night I was walking back to the instructor's cabin and, and uh, which is tucked away in the bushes, kind of away from all the other buildings. And uh, I got jumped by, by four guys. And so that was, uh, 
that was a pretty shocking thing. Like it's the last thing I was expecting walking back to a cabin in a nature reserve. That's like hundreds and hundreds of hectares, like in the middle of nowhere, there would be, you know, four guys waiting to jump me. And so that was a, a particularly traumatic thing to, to go through. I mean, they were trying to beat my head in with rocks basically. Um, and, and I didn't really know how to process what was happening to me at the time. Yeah. I, I recall like thinking I can't die tonight. <laughs> That was the that was the thought that sticks out in my brain the most. Is like I can't die tonight. Like I want to see my wife again, who's only a couple hundred meters away in a building. Um, that must have been that part of it. Like I thank you for sharing that, but and also thank you for sharing that. Like I can't get that mental remembering saying I can't die tonight. But knowing your wife is not that far away was probably an even tougher part of all of it. It's like I just I want her to be safe, and I want like all of these mm-hmm. pieces. So. Yeah. It, it, like the actual attack itself probably didn't last for more than a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, I, I'm like pretty big and strong and the guys attacking me were not that big. Um, they were high on drugs. Um, that's one mm-hmm. of the ways that they sort of n- numb themselves to prepare for doing something like this. Um, but of course, they had the element of surprise and they'd smash me over the head a few times and I was concussed and bloodied. And um, but somehow I managed to fight my way kind of back to my feet and, and break free from them and stumble over to the building where, where my wife was. And it, it's dark, it's nighttime. And so you can imagine the thought that she had and everybody else, like all of our students, when I kind of burst through the door of faces covered in blood and like I've been attacked, I've been jumped. I don't know how many guys are out there because at that time I didn't know. No. It, it, it all just happens like so fast. And and then and sort of chaos kind of ensues where we end up sort of trapped in this building and these guys are like trying to break down the doors. They have like shovels and baseball bats and they're trying to smash the doors in. And uh, it was, it was again, a really sort of crazy situation. And all I'm thinking is like, man, I hope they don't have guns because they could just start shooting us through the windows right, kind of thing. Right. And thankfully they didn't. So it, it was, so we were trapped in there for about 45 minutes. Um, eventually the police did show up, but of course it's like a 45 minute drive to get yeah. from the, the nearest city and and when you drive on the nature reserve at night, you have to go down to this valley and come up the other side. And so you could see the the flashing lights of the police car from for like 20 minutes. It was like torturous. But then of course these guys knew that too. So they just kind of disappeared in the bushes. And, and over there in South Africa at that time, probably hasn't changed a lot to be truthful. Um, police are like kind of inept. Like they just don't care. Mm-hmm. They showed up because they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, it looks like they're gone. Okay, we'll leave now. And thankfully, my wife was like, what? No, you're not leaving. Like, you're not leaving till we're all here. You guys have guns. Exactly. Uh, yeah. oh, you know, it's this crazy thing because in Canada, like, we have our problems, but our police force is, like, quite professional. Mm-hmm. All, th- all things considered, they're very professional compared mm-hmm. to wh- what I've seen in third world countries. And so when they were like, yeah, we'll just leave now because it looks like they're gone. My wife was like, are you, are you guys insane? Like, Wow. Just wow. So that, that was this crazy kind of experience that, that, you know, nothing in life really prepares you for. No, not at all. Like, how did you, how long was your recovery time and how long were you in South Africa after that? Uh, I mean, really, I was only in hospital for a couple of days for observation because oh. just to make sure like the concussion wasn't serious, there wasn't any serious brain damage or anything like that, which thankfully there wasn't. Um, they didn't manage to break any bones, like bruised ribs from being kicked and stomped. But again, I think like I'm fairly big and thick. And so mm-hmm. I, I had some cushioning to absorb the blows as well. I, I kind of chuckle now. 
Um, I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of it. It was extremely traumatic to go through, but thankfully I've like, I've done a lot of work to allow me to speak about it from a more comfortable place. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the mental part of it, uh, like I, I did like one trauma counseling session down there and I will say it was helpful to at least understand like what I was going to go through to some degree so that it didn't feel entirely unexpected. Uh, you know, things like flashes of rage and, and just overwhelming emotions and flashbacks and things like that. Uh, I now understand what PTSD is like, and it's, it's pretty difficult. So recovery is kind of a nebulous term because I think, well, in like physically, maybe I was a couple of weeks and I was sort of back to normal, so to speak, but like mentally and emotionally, the recovery was probably multiple years, maybe even close to a decade because I didn't really know what kind of help I needed. I, I Thank you for saying this. And I was, I was actually going to be one of my questions is what was that recovery like for you? Like, cause you, you don't know what you need. And mm -hmm. when you're dealing with that kind of trauma, the flashbacks, you can't plan for those. And sometimes the things that trigger them are not even related to what happened. I yeah, think yeah. that's a really big piece of trauma that isn't talked about. When I think about it now, um, you know, we talk about having a gut feeling and mm -hmm to some degree, maybe there's a metaphysical element to that. Mm -hmm. But I also think like all of our senses take in information and our brain filters like 11 million bits of information per second. It's unbelievable, but it has to then make a judgment about that. And it will send a signal through the vagus nerve down to our gut that makes us go, Ooh, something feels off. I don't know what it is, but somehow my brain's already figured out that something doesn't feel right about this situation. Yeah. And so it could be like, I might just be walking down the street and somebody looks at me a little bit sideways and my brain goes, uh Oh, this doesn't feel right. And so th there was a lot of that where, yeah, you can't really figure out, or sometimes there was really no explanation for like why this happened. Now we continued living in South Africa from the time that happened for like another four months. And there were other incidents that took place, none so direct and violent as that. Uh, one of our coworkers was murdered, um, oh. locked in a building, set on fire, this kind of stuff. Like it, it's, and, and so South Africa is this really paradoxical country this country of like immense beauty and, and like horrific violence, wealth and, and immense poverty, mm -hmm. like social divides. And a lot of people think about like the, the, the white versus black divide, but there's, there's eight black ethnic groups primary in South Africa and they all fight with each other because they all have different cultures and different backgrounds and different languages. Like they call it South Africa, the rainbow nation. I think they have 11 official languages, but there is so much tension in general in South Africa. And so it's it's kind of this paradoxical tragedy of a country that has so much beauty and wealth and potential, but it's just rocked with all of this. And so we kind of got caught in the crossfire when we were living down there. Yeah, that's a that's that's a lot. Honestly, thank you for sharing all of that. And I've actually connected with a few people from South Africa who very much live on the high end of the extreme and and mm -hmm just in, in the way that they live in the life and, and everything that they have, but they talk very openly about how, like, it's just, there's really not much middle. It's like, we've got the one end and the other end of the extreme. So it's a, so how long were you in South Africa total? About six months total. Okay. So, so only about six months. And when yeah, you left, did you we, come yeah. back to Canada or where did you go after that? No, we, we first, flew over to Dubai and then to Thailand and then over to Australia where my wife is from. And we spent about three months over there. 
and kind of psychologically decompressing from being in South Africa. By the time we left, we were, we were probably on the verge of like a nervous breakdown, both of us, mm-hmm. because when your house is broken into on like a weekly basis, when people around you are getting robbed or attacked on a regular basis and you're just hearing about it day after day after day, it starts to feel like you're under siege. Like we had the copper pipes cut out of our house. Like someone broke in and our guys, like a gang broke in and cut out the copper pipes. So we didn't have running water. <laughs> Wait, while you were home? Like people, we, like we we were away at that time. So okay. sometimes it would happen when you're there, but we had like a panic button that you'd hit, and it calls like armed private security. And so, and and the one thing about South Africa, and again, it's hard for people to understand this, but like you call armed private security, and they shoot to kill. Like that's all it is because it's their life or your life. Like it is just that uh, that like drastic down there. There is there is not nearly the same respect for human life that we have in Canada. Like. If I, if I hadn't traveled, I wouldn't have nearly the same understanding of like how fortunate we are to just put so much value on an individual human life. Whereas uh-huh. down there, it, it just, it doesn't exist. And it's hard for us to fathom that that's the reality that people live in down there for so many of them. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's a really, like, there's a part of, that could go another whole way with this podcast, but there's a part of Canadians that I think like we get that, like we see that and we get it. And mm-hmm. so, which makes that experience even more like just mm. obviously horrific for a lot of reasons, but almost unbelievable because it's like, wow, I can't even imagine living and knowing that is what life is like. I can't. That's yeah. That's like we, we kept um, weapons by our bedside. Like we didn't have guns. We, I suppose we probably could have acquired them, but and I'm ex-military. I know how to use them, but uh, I, part of me still doesn't want to actually shoot a gun and take another human's life. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but, but after all of this sort of piled up, like we were just constantly living on edge mm-hmm. and it, it kind of becomes, it becomes too much. And so but like part of the reason we stayed is because we're like, well, they don't get to win. We don't, they don't get to take this from us or we're strong and so on and so forth. And we, we wanted to kind of hold on to that, like, because we we really loved the work we were doing. Mm-hmm. It actually was really cool, really gratifying work. Things that we take for granted over here, again, because the education system is a failure over there, mm-hmm. the public one. And so teaching things that we think are second nature, because again, we're educated in this, that they don't get taught because maybe their teacher is an alcoholic or a drug addict or something. And so, like, it's just, again, it just boggles our mind. And so I'm like, man, I'm I'm so glad I live in Canada. Yeah, I was, I, I understand. I was going to ask you why you stayed. I was going to ask you that. Um, and I do understand that mentality of like, they don't get to win, especially when I'm here doing, like I'm trying to do some really good work. And then there comes a point where it's like, okay, this is just not what I want for my life. This is yeah. not how I want it to go. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that piece on, you know, being almost a decade of feeling those feelings, going through mm-hmm. that experience. What is that like? And I think that's another piece I said about trauma that we carry it in our body. We carry it in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We carry it. We it's it's not as simple as you just talk it out and it's gone. It's like we store it. Part of mm-hmm. the reason why our subconscious mind, our body stores it is to protect us, right? It to protect mm-hmm. us. It doesn't want to deal with that those feelings. And so it, we protect ourselves for the right reasons, but we that also can delay us processing a lot of what we're, we've walked through. Yeah. So eventually we, we ended up back in Canada. So um, 
probably another year and a half after that happened, we continued traveling. We went back for like a brief, like three weeks in South Africa and went back to Turkey um, where my brother lives, lived there for a bit and kind of worked way back across Europe again before eventually coming back to Canada. And getting back to Canada itself was like this reverse culture shock. Um, we, we got back and I was actually struggling to find employment because I was kind of waiting for the Navy. I was going to go back to the military, but mm-hmm. my paper was sort of hung up but in, in Ottawa with some bureaucrat somewhere. And uh, we had to go back and live with my parents for like a couple of months. And this this was also like, here we are, like 30, 30 years old you know, been world travelers, supremely independent, come back to Canada. We don't actually have a life here. So we don't have a vehicle or anything like that. Uh, You know, don't have a lot of money left. Can't get some employment. I even tried applying for a job at like a, like a corner store (laughs) They didn't in in this small town that my parents lived in. I was like, just something to bring some money in because their savings are dwindling pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. actually I was, I was very close to applying for welfare. Uh, And again, it was this weird place to, to be in. And then, and then I got this call from a friend of mine who was dean of trades at a school, and he was like, "Hey, we're starting this new program uh, it, with a power line technician. Do, do, would you like to be a part of that trade? I know your background in engineering and so on, and would you like to be a part of that?" And I was like, "Oh, heck yeah!" Because I thought I thought I wanted to be like I, I loved the power line trade. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both like you have to be switched on mentally to do this because you're working with like really dangerous things, but it's also physically demanding as well. There's a lot of climbing involved with it. And so I was like, oh yeah, I, I want to get into that. And it was just after I'd accepted that offer to like get into this program that like the Navy called and was like, okay, we have your contract ready for you. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and and that was around the same time we got a call from like welfare that was like, hey, you know, your first payments, you know, we just want to make sure you still need this. Like the first payments can be coming out. And I was like, well, now I actually have this job coming in. And so uh, it was, it was just a really weird time in life, but kind of running parallel to that was uh, a lot of coping behaviors that I didn't recognize as coping behaviors. So there's all this kind of upheaval in my life, trying to rebuild my life. But also I was struggling with binge eating and, and food addiction mm-hmm. as a way of not dealing with everything else that was swirling around I- in my head at the time. And by the time I got back to Canada, I was probably down about 50 or 60 pounds from my heaviest. Mm-hmm. But anybody who, I mean, I work in the field of weight loss um, primarily, and and anyone who's who's worked in that field for any length of time begins to understand that this isn't just a lose it once and you're good for the rest of your life kind of situation. This is a essentially lifelong management of what amounts to a chronic disease because we live in a world that's filled with obesogenic food and uh, hyperstimuli and things like that. And we have a biology that's wired to store fat because we're famine resilient. <laughs> and so all of this to say, my my weight has been like a, a lifelong battle, but it also means that it gives me a unique insight into it when I work with people. So um, I hadn't really connected the dots between my binge eating and my food addiction and my trauma, because again, I didn't grow up in, an, in a time where people talked about this stuff. No. And we kind of, we now... You think even the last 10 years, how much this conversation has progressed around mental health. And man, like it wasn't, we didn't get that in in childhood. Oh, we didn't get anything about that in childhood. There's nothing like it's, I'm, I'm a decade older than you, a little bit more than a decade. And, um, it was just never even discussed. It was actually almost forbidden and Mm -hmm. it was extremely frowned upon to, talk about anything mental health it was actually i even take it one step further that it was not even allowed to have emotions i mm. it really wasn't 
emotions were shoved down. And so it was not safe to feel. It was not safe to have emotions. It was actually expected that you didn't. And so that's not like, that's not healthy. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just painting a picture that it was not something like, I would say that's something I've really actively worked on as an adult, which sounds so silly to some people, but it was just really not allowed to have emotions. Well, I mean, so, I mean, obviously I'm a male, I, I love being male. I love being masculine, but there's aspects of masculinity in our culture that mm-hmm. are really, and I don't like the word toxic because it's like so often I understand why it's overused. Used, yeah. But it gets overused, but like there are, there are some very troubling aspects of masculinity that kind of get elevated. So I look back, my grandfather, um, he was a prisoner of war in world war II, captured by the Germans and that traumatized him. He came back from the war, married my grandmother. They, you know, had, had my dad, one of their four kids, but that was just all done out of duty. Like this is what you do as a man, you marry, you have, you, you father children, but he didn't love his kids. He didn't physically abuse them. Um, but he, he was just emotionally not there. All he had capacity for was criticism. There was no love there. Yeah. Um, my dad graduates and he gets a pat on the shoulder. All right. Now it's like time to get out in the real world. You know, like that, that's like encapsulates what it was like. So here, my dad is not equipped at all. That's been his model of what masculinity looks like. Mm-hmm. And he knew within himself that he didn't want to be that kind of dad, but it is really hard to kind of overcome our patterning. And so I I have so much respect for how much progress he made from where his father was at, mm-hmm. that he was at least available to us emotionally to some degree. Now he has trauma in the background because he has a twin brother who committed suicide. Yeah. And and so, but then his pattern was again, you bury those emotions. Now, I was the kid that had temper tantrums. I had huge emotions as a kid. I didn't understand it at the time, but it turns out like I'm quite an empath. And so I, I seem to like read people and absorb their emotional energy. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. And at some point it had to be expressed and and a temper tantrum was basically a pressure relief valve because you talk about emotions being safe or unsafe. And like it was seen, my behavior was seen as shameful. This kid who just flies off the handle and has these mm-hmm. temper tantrums and so on. And and my parents didn't really know what to do with me because here's this kid who goes to school, gets straight A's because I've got a really good memory and I don't have to study. Um, but at home, I'm like this un, sometimes unpredictable, volatile kind of kid with these, you know, erratic behaviors that are really hard to deal with because again, they have no, no understanding of it either. Mm -hmm. And during that time, again, this is a big, like big paintbrush for a second, but during that time, it was very much like, we don't have to figure out what's going on with the kids because they're just going to, they're going to change. Like, it's just, they're going to, they're going to grow out of it. Yeah. They're going to grow out of it. Like they're going to grow out of it. They're just going to stop. We don't need to worry about any of that. So I say that with like a lot of love in a sense, but, mm-hmm. and we don't have all our stuff figured out either. So just no <laughs> in perspective, right. Really just being honest. Um, but I look at how much we have changed personally, like my husband, mm-hmm. myself, our, our family unit over these, even if I, we've been together for married almost 30 years, but we have been mm-hmm. in a space where, especially when we navigated a lot with our kids, we had to, which we didn't have to, we chose to, change so that we had a better chance of navigating what we were dealing with. Yeah. That was just a different approach. 
our when what we grew up with was that no, there was no change happening. It was like this is the way it is, and you're going to change. So it was very. It's just a very interesting. So you can see, like, if you look at just even from the snippets of your life that you've shared almost how like your life has set you up perfectly to do the work that you do now. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I even think about, you know, talking about family unit 10 years ago, I would have been a very different father figure to a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a part of me goes, Ooh, kind of started a bit late. My first son was born at 39. My second one's going to be here at 41. Mm-hmm. But I think about how I'm parenting him and how different it is to how I would have 10 years earlier because I, I had, I mean, I was still just wrestling with tremendous trauma. I had no real understanding of what it was. And, and so, you know, going through the mid 2010s or 20 teens, whatever we call that decade, you know, I, I just thought, well, I just, I just got to lose the weight because the next thing that kind of happens is I went from being athletic to being obese and, and now I started to hate my body. It felt like my body had let me down. Like why? And, and I was trying to force my body into submission. So I was trying to train as hard as I could. I was dieting as hard as I could. I was you know, taking fat burners and ridiculous stimulants and things. And the culmination of that was I started having panic attacks and serious anxiety episodes because I was driving my, and I look back now, I was basically redlining my nervous system day in and day out. I was also sleeping five hours a night and trying to run a business because as, as we talked about off the record, it turns out I didn't make a great employee either. Um, it, it all makes sense now. But I, I remember like eventually a doctor was like, look, there's no, there's no like medication that can fix this. Like you, you have to change how you're living and I don't have the tools to help you with that. You're going to have to find help elsewhere. And that was, that in itself was a really sort of like what honesty from a doctor Mm-hmm. Uh, now I could have used a referral or something, <laughs> but at least he had the honesty to say like, Hey, like something here, you, you need some kind of help that I can't provide you, you know, yeah. because I think even again, how we maybe grew up thinking like the medical system was the, the safety net that was just going to save us from ourselves. And it turns out it's not. No. And so, um, I, I started looking at hiring coaches to, to try to help me, but again, not really knowing what I needed for help. Mm-hmm. A coach didn't know how to handle me either. And I didn't know. And so it, it was always a very frustrating situation. And, and often coaches would try to kind of control me or coerce me. And um, I, I, again, it's, and I, I'm a coach and I'm a very, very different coach, but maybe it was good that I had that experience. And, and but of course I radically rebelled against that because it's, it's, and so, but I was, I was starting to learn, okay, there, there's something more to this. And it, it, eventually I landed with this coach because I was like, I obviously need some kind of help. It, it still wasn't occurring to me that I could use some more mental health help. I had that one trauma counseling session and it hadn't occurred to me that I still, I could have used a little more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I went and had a life insurance, uh, you know, I, when you go to get life insurance, they want to do this medical assessment and to check your weight and your blood pressure and all these other things. And I had to get a rider, which is like an extra fee, like monthly fee on my life insurance payments because I was at higher risk of dying. And that was a pretty big slap in the face. And I go, okay, like I, I got to do something, but I still don't know what it is I'm looking for. Um, Until I hired a coach who, who worked with me in a very compassionate and patient way. And it was this radical like different approach or to me it was radical because again i thought coaching was you know i was i was coaching people and it was like macros and training plans and meal plans and like details and 
and here you start digging into the emotions and like, where's my behavior coming from? And that sort of psychology education that I maybe abandoned years ago, because marketing psychology, it's still the study of human behavior. It's just mm-hmm. directing purchasing decisions in a sense. All of a sudden things are, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this long sort of dusted off thing that I did many, many years ago. Like some of that knowledge is actually starting to become useful as I'm starting to understand this. And he had to model for me compassion because mm-hmm. I didn't know what it looked like. And I was afraid of it. Like compassion in my eyes was weakness. Yeah. I think that's, thank you for sharing that piece because that's such a huge, um, I, I love, I just want to say one thing here when it comes to what you've just shared is for a long time, the coaching industry was about fixing where the client was mm-hmm. fixing what the client needed. Whereas in my opinion, coaching is about facilitating and helping the client to come to those points of views, not for me to superimpose what you need to do, because I think that's actually like, go back to toxic. I think it's incredibly toxic and it's not, it's not the way. And it's myself, it just, there were so many times in our journey that I got a lot of counseling. I got a lot of support. And there was a time where my reaction was very um, over the top to something. And the counselor looked and said, like, that's PTSD, your reaction is. And I remember, like, in distant perspective, I, this is about six years ago. So we're not talking like decades ago. And I mm-hmm. said, like, well, not PTSD. How is that possible? And she said, well, that's what that is. I'm like, well, what do I do with that? And she's like, it will pass. And that was it. And I was like, okay, so great. Now something else is wrong with me. And I don't even know what to do with that. And so I remember finding for me, a lot of my real change started with the right coaches and mentors. Mm -hmm. So I love that. It can be that role. Well, the thing about trauma is it's recorded in a timeless part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So the idea that time heals all wounds is not true. No. Because like I would get flashbacks that bring me right back to being in that moment. And it's years later, I'm thinking, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. This doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make sense if we bought into this idea that time heals halt trauma and it just sort of fades away in the background over time. And it doesn't, it shows up. And so having someone show me compassion, it, it was essentially challenging. So I just put it this way. I had developed this belief about myself One, I'm not worthy of any kind of love, self-love, probably because I was male, among other things. And and it really wasn't talked about in in sort of masculine culture, like self-love is is a woman's thing. It's a weakness. It's like, we don't don't do that stuff. And here he was like, let's say I was just going to binge, you know, I ate ate an entire pizza in a parking lot in my car, you know, just Mm -hmm. hating myself for every bite, but forcing myself to eat it. Almost like I was, I was like trying to spite myself with eating because I was so angry that I was so overweight and had seemingly had no control over it. And so I was just waiting for him to, you know, just tell me what a hopeless loser I was and basically just give up on me because that was what I was telling myself. Like, Hey, you're a hopeless loser. This is never going to work. You're never going to get through this. And uh, he was like, "Hmm, that's interesting. It's like, what do you mean? (laughs) He's like, well, let's, let's say that all behavior makes sense. And let's think about that for a minute. And he put like a different perspective on this behavior instead of my story, which is I'm a hopeless loser with no self-control, just compulsively eating this food, even though I know it's hurting me to do this, but can't seem to stop to there's a reason this behavior occurred. It's actually meeting a need. 
It doesn't mean it's a good solution to meet that need, but that's what's happening here. And it was like, that's my mind being blown. Well, I'm like, what? And it was this monumental shift in like my understanding of myself. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not a hopeless loser. Like that's, oh, (laughs) there's actually hope for me. And so it really started this journey of learning, well, what is self-compassion? What does that look like? And so we started reframing some of the behaviors that I had to, because I think, well, how do we change a belief? Because I had this, it was really deeply ingrained, this belief that I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of care. And I think we take little actions that are contrary to that belief. So Mm -hmm. big actions that go against that belief, our brain will typically reject because it's too big a leap from where we presently are and it feels unsafe. Little actions, just bit by bit. And so brushing my teeth became an act of Mm self-care. Drinking water in the morning became an act of self-care and just started reframing these things and chipping away at these beliefs. And he gave me permission to like have these big emotions that I'd had from the time I was a child that Again, I didn't I didn't understand, but it was like, oh, like it doesn't diminish me that I have these big feelings and actually they do need space and expression. And uh, it just it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, it's so I think this is such a beautiful thing is that this person obviously crossed your path at the right time. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it opened up your eyes for um, what was possible to see. It's I think sometimes when we can actually just have a perspective shift. It's like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, what did somebody say to me once? It's like the prism. You know, if you take the prism and you turn it, 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 you might have turned it like a quarter of a centimeter, but you change the projection completely. And that's Mm. the piece is that sometimes it's just one small shift perspective wise that allows you to see it differently, which now is allowing you to step into healing. And it's not that there's something wrong with you or that you're broken. Yeah, this idea that I had to like fix myself, I had to fix everything that was wrong with me. And I can actually work with myself and I can work with my body and work with my brain. I don't have to be fighting it all the time. And, you know, I think like we can't hate ourselves into a healthy place. It just can't happen. And so thinking of that prism, like we we had a moment, he'd been working with me for about four months and I I wouldn't like give up on him because I'd paid a year (laughs) up front. Um, but I was trying to get him to like give up on me. <laughs> Self-sabotage. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about like right moment, right time, like a good or a great coach, like asks the right question at the right time that creates the conversation that creates this perspective shift. And for me, it was this question of if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down do I go that list before I see your name? Mm-hmm. And you know, when he asked me that question, I was just like, what? Like, not on the list. Is, right. Like, that's not a list where my name shows up, things I love and value. And so it opened to this. What does that even look like? Am I allowed? I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to love myself. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. You know, this whole, like, I remember just being stunned when he first asked me that question when I was like, oh my gosh, like, what does this even mean for me? And so mm-hmm. it was like, I was so grateful that I was in this coaching relationship because going through these kind of monumental shifts in like my worldview, like my perspective of self and so on, like to to be left alone in those moments would be incredibly difficult. And I think this speaks to why even in the age of like infinite information, coaching is so, so valuable and important, or not just coaching, but therapy, but human connection while we're going through this process of change, it gives us something to anchor to when our reality is being rocked to its core. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's so good and so true. And so how long was that time that you worked with them? And when did you, so that's one question. Second question Mm -hmm. is when did you start to say that, wait, maybe I could do this for others? Well, because I was already coaching people, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, like I'm interesting. I, I think I'm a, a teacher kind of, or a coach by, by nature. Mm-hmm. I, I look back and I always seem to find myself in these positions where I'm sharing information with other people and, and, and working with them. And I, I, I have a pretty empathic sense of other people. I, I joke that my coaching superpower is x-ray vision. Um, I don't, I can't really explain how I can just read people, mm-hmm. but I can mm-hmm. and see something in them that they might not see in themselves uh, but now I realize that in this process, I can't just blurt out what I see in them uh, because they're not necessarily ready to receive that. But I guide them to the place where they they have this kind of revelation themselves and they go, oh my gosh, like how, how did I not see this all along? Mm-hmm. And so him working with me in that way showed me there is a different way to coach. Like there's a different way to coach people. There's a different way to work with people. And I, I look at how I was coaching, like, you know, training and meal plans and macros, all these like numerical variables that had all the emotion removed from them because I was afraid of my own feelings and emotions. And so I couldn't hold space or create space for others to process their emotions and things. And when I had this shift, um, like the type of people that I worked with shifted dramatically for starters, but like the kind of results that people were getting shifted because I could, I could tailor the most precise, like perfectly engineered meal plan and training plan that if you follow this to the T, you'll get incredible results. Like, you know, I had a guy lose 16% body fat in like 12 weeks. It was, he went from 24% to like 8%. It was insane. Mm-hmm. Saw him six months later, didn't, he'd gained all the weight back and more. And I was like, what happened? Well, there was no way humanly possible he could sustain this, you know, perfectly engineered plan I'd come up with. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, so now I'm working with people in a totally different way. I work for, for much longer periods of time with people because I know inevitably we're going to come across these these times, these situations, these places where where everything we seem to regress or go backwards and so on. And just helping people, like you said, facilitate. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, the greatest thing that happened to me as a coach is realizing I don't even have to have all the answers. Oh, actually, no, I think, I think the second you think you have to have the answers or you are planning on having them, I think that's a big red flag. Like I actually think it's a huge red flag. Yeah. So that's going back to about 2018 when, when 2017, 2018, when this really shifted. So I worked with coach, his name is Scott. I worked with him for about a year. Uh, Yeah, it was 12 months. And still every year uh, I reach out to him, just say, Hey, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, and what was really cool is on my for my 40th birthday, without my knowing, my wife went and found like all these people in my life who'd had an, uh, a positive impact on it and got them to record like a little video message for me. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and so she tracked down Scott and he was he's not easy to track down. He's not actually that easy to find. Mm-hmm. Those who know him know him and he doesn't ever have to advertise that he does this. Mm-hmm. But she managed to track him down and he sent me a message and it was it was super meaningful. That one in particular. Um because she knows, like, I mean, think about, I've been together with my wife for, for 17 years. So she, she's been by my side through all of this. Amazing. And I, I think about, and you've mentioned, you know, you've been over 30 years being married. Like we go into this in, in our twenties as like these ideal, like madly in love kind of young people. This is going to be amazing. We have this great future ahead of us. And all of a sudden, like, <laughs> and, but we grow, like you either grow apart or you grow together. Yeah. And as cliche as that sounds, 
Mm-hmm. And we had to work through a lot. But I mean, I so I had to work a lot on myself because we have a na- my wife and I have a natural chemistry. And mm-hmm. so it was maybe easy to take our relationship for granted that it's just always going to be there. And but going through, I think about how my marriage has changed so much more so for the better. Like I'm a much more compassionate, like thoughtful husband for her, supportive, recognizing her needs, like letting her sleep in when she's 35 weeks pregnant and chopping a couple hours off my work day to look after my little boy to make sure that she gets the rest she needs mm-hmm. instead of just being like, you know, suck it up, princess. Women know how to do this. You know, like, I, I don't know that I ever would have quite put it that way, but I just, I see this, this attitude still sort of exists out there. And uh, it does, yeah, so, sadly, it does. Yeah. So just this ability to, and actually to communicate my needs. Hey, I don't like it when you talk to me like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. There's so, this is so good. And I think this is a piece though, is like when you learn to heal and you learn to prioritize yourself, your relationships will change. Like how you mm-hmm. respond will change. They will change. You start to have conversations. We've had some really difficult conversations between my husband and myself, but mm-hmm. I know my younger years would have been like, you're doing this, 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 this. And that's what it would have been, which never worked just for anybody who's listening. <laughs> and I mean, as it's now, it's like, I don't like how I feel when you do this. This does not mm-hmm. feel good. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't mean to do it that way. I'm so sorry. It's like actually mm-hmm. a conversation. It's like, yeah. Well, I think about it now. So my wife used to, kind of jokingly call me the tin man um, because so many of my emotions were hidden, mm-hmm. but she's like, I know you're in there. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Which is, which is kind of funny. So I, I think about like these people in my life, like my, my wife who somehow saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself because I actually tried to push her away too. Not, not physically, mm-hmm. but I tried to tell her that her life would be better without me in it and that she should go back to Australia, be with her family, maybe find somebody else. Just don't be stuck with me, this sorry, hopeless loser that, that she deserves better than this. And, and she would not give up on us. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fruit of that, of like working through that, cause she could have, she could have just went back home. Hey, my family's there. Like, I'm, you know, it's, it's a place I'm familiar with. I'm in Canada. Like life is different over here. I know we think Australia, they, they are fairly similar, but there's, it's a long way from home. Mm-hmm. And so she, she didn't give up on me, but I mentioned that because for a long time, she had to almost like speak to me in such a blunt and would seemingly harsh way to actually try to reach me because yeah. I was so emotionally distant. And so as I started actually becoming in tune with my own feelings and being safe, having feelings and emotions and, and, and so on. I had to help her to understand that she doesn't need to talk to me in that way anymore to actually get a response out of me. Mm-hmm. And so we went through this really interesting period of tension where it was like, you, you know, I, you don't have to talk to me like you're, you're my mom or like I'm six years old, or you don't have to talk in like such a harsh tone. I actually feel that stuff. It turns out, yeah. you know, when I was like burying it and shutting it down, I would just maybe snap back at you. And when I was in that kind of mood, whereas now I actually feel it. And mm-hmm. so um, but, but now I think about like, we have such a beautiful relationship because of that. And so it's really, it's fascinating to know that this is possible. Mm-hmm. It is possible. And I mean, how you've shared your story with us. And I just, it's like, all I can keep seeing now is you look at it and listen to you talk is like all these dots that keep connecting and they, they connect and yes, would it have been better to not walk through all of the trauma? Of course, like, of course, 
It's right. just how life works. And it's, it's as we do that, you've taken this now and you've built a business. Tell us a little bit about what you do now and the kinds of clients and the different clients that you get to work with. Yeah. So I, I started studying more or getting back more into like psychology and then started getting into neuroscience and studying that as well and really wanting to understand the brain. And I think part of my motivation was trying to understand myself better, but it's so interesting. We learn about ourselves and then we can see it in others and then we can even help others with it. Mm-hmm. And so I, in 2018, I rebranded my company as Freedom Nutrition Coaching and the name came from a client said to me, I don't want to live in nutrition prison anymore. I oh, like, wow. Like that's a, yeah. You, you captured that like really well. Like, because so many women in particular like really struggle with this idea. And so I started studying that part of it kind of more. And then I was like, well, how, how do we, how do we make decisions? What drives our behavior? So get, why don't we bring this compassionate, curious approach to why we do what we do, where we're actually allowed to look at our behavior and not judge it, but just try to understand it. And so, you know, I have kind of a a structured program that I kind of guide people through. But for me, I say, look, these are all just starting points to explore something. I give you a starting point so it doesn't feel aimless. Mm-hmm. But then from that point, we we explore as you try to implement this, what happens, what comes up and so on. And so there's a very sort of human, well, compassionate, curious approach as we walk through this. And so I try to, uh, I say, I try to marry the the science of metabolism because it does still matter when people, most of my clients are trying to lose weight with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection. Mm. Can you say that last part again? Because I think that's really powerful. Yeah. The the science of metabolism mm-hmm. with the psychology of behavior change mm-hmm. and the compassion of human connection. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. We, we need all of those elements. Like I tried to run off the science of metabolism almost exclusively for mm-hmm. a long time. I got super deep into nutrition and supplement science. I dove into my chemistry background. I mean, I had my own little chemistry set. I was buying bulk compounds, and creating supplements and things. And I was totally missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Like these supplements aren't going to save me from myself. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, there's a whole nother thing about the business that I had that completely failed and cost me everything, but maybe that's for another, another conversation. I'll just drop that teaser. But that I went through that too, while going through all of this personal journey, but it, even that opened the door to this that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And so um, most of my clients are, are women over 50. And I, I couldn't have predicted it if you'd have told me, but it seems like that's where so much of my messaging lands. And and I think about my, my clients and how they've had many, many years of, could we say erroneous messaging, building up this, this lifelong series of sort of false beliefs about themselves. What for me is really exciting is this idea that like, you're not done at 50 or 60, like Mm -hmm. you're not, there's actually, and, and. So the fact that they haven't given up on themselves is one of my clients is 68 and wanting to lose 200 pounds. I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I love this. It's for me, it is so inspiring because I I think, man, I hope in my sixties that I'm still like not giving up on myself, Mm -hmm. that I'm still striving to better myself and to grow. And I guess it's each client is like this fascinating puzzle where we, we explore their backstory. And just like you've mentioned, like connecting the dots, like one after another is I'm like, oh, it, and it all starts to become clear. And so it's, it's amazing for them too, to watch them connect the dots. And, and it just, 
you know, you transform like the inside, you transform your beliefs about yourself and how you speak to yourself and how you see yourself. And I, I, I joke that like weight loss is a side effect. Like it, it's nutrition is the cover story, but so we use food or nutrition as a lens to begin to explore our behaviors and our relationship to self and beliefs and so on. So it gives us a safe starting point. Hey, I'd like to lose some weight. Can you help me? Yeah, absolutely. And then along the way, so I, I joke that like, you know, imagine if I'm standing on a 10th floor balcony and I'm just trying to shout at people like down at ground level and be like, it's so amazing up here. You should see it. Come on up here. And they're like, what? I can't hear you. There's all this noise and traffic and chaos. Like, I can't hear you. And no, no. I have to go all the way down to the first floor and meet them at the ground level and go, hey, okay, this is where you're at. Okay, let's let's just go through the doorway first. And then maybe we go up like one flight of stairs and we see things in a little bit different perspective. And then maybe we go up another flight of stairs and so on. And over time, now they're on that balcony with me, but I've walked beside them on this journey of like going up these flights of stairs, these new levels of understanding and so on. So now that they're here, it doesn't mean that they're on easy street. They're never going to have to like pay attention again. But it's just one of my clients said, I never realized like how easy it could become. And the thing that I noticed is I just like the internal struggle is gone. Like, yes, I have to manage and pay attention and be thoughtful and so on, but it doesn't feel like this endless struggle now. And and that's what I love. Oh, I love, thank you for sharing all of that. I just had this great visual. Like that's such a great way to say it is like go down and meet them where they're at, at what floor they're at. And the thing is, is that we can all have like really huge changes at once. But if the self-worth doesn't move with it, then we don't sustain it, right? Like we don't sustain it. It's like, it's whatever that is. If we don't believe that we are deserving of fill in whatever blank it is, Mm -hmm. and you get those results, then you'll never maintain it. And so it's really helping to climb those stairs in a way or go the floors in the elevator so that you're also growing as a person and you're seeing mm-hmm. that like, I deserve this. This is, I am worthy of this. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it really becomes such a, a, just visual that popped in my head when you shared that. Yeah. Well, I think I couldn't take the mindset that I have now and dump it on my 33 year old self, for example, yeah. or 29 year old self. My mind, my brain would reject it entirely mm-hmm. because it's such a departure from who I was, the kind of person that I was. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important, like you said, I don't have it all figured out. Gosh, parenthood has been like this huge upheaval in my life. It's been the greatest thing ever. And I, I love being a dad more than I ever imagined I possibly could. It's it's mind boggling how a little human can come into your life and, and just change your heart in so many ways. It's, it's the greatest thing ever. But boy, it's pretty tricky, this whole parenting thing. Mm-hmm. Like. Trickies, yeah. Trickies, tricky. We used to use the word interesting all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like interesting. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, kid, kids are a mirror, right? And so, and and, and just to kind of, because I know like you speak about owning your choices and I look back and I think I had so many opportunities and, and actually I took advantage of some of those opportunities to just stay a victim for, for stretches in my life. I just wanted to throw up my hands in despair and go, that's it. Like, I'm a victim to my circumstances. I'm a victim to my trauma. I'm a victim to whatever's wrong with me. I just, I can't change this. Mm-hmm. And, but then somebody comes along and they, they didn't yell. You know, I was in the military. I taught drill. I yelled at people. I, I know how all that stuff works, but it doesn't really work on adult human beings. Mm-mm. Like it, it just, we're, we're, we, de- we deserve to have like our autonomy and independence respected in this process. And you talked about, again, facilitating. I, I joke that I'm like a tour guide in your city. 
So you're actually really familiar with your city. And as I walk with you through this, I'm going to be pointing out things that you just maybe never thought about, or you just take for granted. And it's, it's so much fun. Yeah. There's something too, when you like for anybody who's listening, when you really understand human behavior and how we learn, we, we actually do learn by metaphors and by like imagery and it's how our subconscious mind is programmed and how it, so as you start to share some, and we're doing this in, in this episode today, I think it's almost funny because it's just something I saw that and I'm like, oh yeah, I could walk the same paths all the time. But if I walk with somebody else, they're going to help me to see something that I don't see because we know ourselves and we know our behaviors. And I think we actually, I think a lot of us know some of the things that we do on a regular basis. They might not be serving that highest version of ourselves, but we don't always know how to stop them or interrupt Mm -hmm. them or change them. And what do we do a lot in this case is we tend to apply like shame, judgment, and criticism for being in the exact same spot. And I I guarantee there is no behavior that is ever going to change by applying shame, judgment, or criticism. It just never, it will never change. So I love the different analogies that you're giving. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel like I should write a book on, on analogies at some point in time um, because it really works well for my brain as well. I'll give you one more. So in the Navy, um, let's say we get a bomb threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have to search the ship for where this might be. And so when we go into a space, we bring one person who's very familiar with the space and one person who never goes in that space. And we do that for a reason because, of course, the person who's familiar looks around but often overlooks things. The person who's not in that space very commonly goes, hey, does that belong here? What about this thing here? Wow. Why is this here? And if you're familiar with it, you go, oh, no, that that belongs here. That, that's normal or whatever. And, oh, no, that's that's actually out of the ordinary. Okay, we might, we might have found something. And so it, this sort of coaching process, again, it's like I, I enter into like people's space in a sense, they're, maybe their headspace, if you will. Mm-hmm. And just, hey, is this, is this normal? Does this belong here? And really just ask questions from this curious place. And you get to tell me like, yes, this is normal. No, this is not. Yes, this belongs here. No, maybe this thing here doesn't. But it's this this fact that somebody who's unfamiliar with that space can come into it and start to identify things that get so easily overlooked because, you know, our brain just automates so much of what we do. And we just take so many things for kind of, kind of for granted. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's our good old subconscious mind. It's just literally on autopilot every single day. Like you just repeating the same things every single day, thinking this is just, I'm making it easier for you. But what if I actually want to change though? Like, what if I actually do want to? So yeah. I, yeah, I love that. I love that um, those, those um, analogies and metaphors and how you're explaining it. Um, where, and I could talk to you, we have actually had many conversations. I <laughs> have been on your show. We have had many kinds of conversations. Tell us about your podcast and where people can mm-hmm. connect and learn more about you. Yeah. So between the before and after, um, that emerged as a byproduct of the coaching that I do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of exploring of people's stories. And so we, social media doesn't give space to to expand or explore between the before and the after, whether it's a photo or not. But and so I wanted to give people a chance to, because human beings learn through stories, as you've been talking about, analogies, metaphors, stories. Stories are sticky. They, they stay with our brains way more than facts ever do. And so I wanted to give a space for people's stories to be explored um, in detail so we can see others who've gone through what we've been through. So when we hear a story, we're listening for elements of ourself and our own experience while looking for hope. If this person in this situation with these characteristics can go through that experience and come out like that, there's hope for me. And so that's how sort of how between the before and after was, was born. 
Um, so I'd love for people to check that out. And I'm trying to think of the episode number that you're on, but it, it actually escapes me. It's somewhere over episode 100. Um, and we're on, I'm publishing like 128 or something. So you're only in the last 20, 25 or so episodes. So I knew it was like in the last few months. It was definitely in the last yeah, few yeah. It was a great conversation. It was a great it conversation. Was. Mm-hmm. No bias. Um, <laughs> no, no. One, one of my favorites. Uh, or freedomnutritioncoach.com. So if you want to learn a little bit more about what I do um, as a coach and the nutrition coaching that I do, freedomnutritioncoach.com, that'll share a little bit more with you. I've got some free resources there that people can tap into as well. Um, you don't have to be a female over 50, like a postmenopausal female over 50 to work with me. It just so happens that they're my favorites, sorry, mm-hmm. um, because they're so much fun to work with. But uh, I, I, I do I do work with people of all ages. Uh, so yeah, I love to see people over there. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you did. And just for, again, you sharing your story. I love how you say stories are sticky because they are. It's what we we hold on to. We connect. And somebody said last week on a recording that I did that will stick with me for a long time that they had built up quite a social media following, but it wasn't until they started to share the parts of their story that it gave people something to root for. And once they had something to root for and they knew more about them, their depth of their connections changed. And so I think stories are sticky is exactly that. It allows us to see ourselves in each other's stories. So I love all of that. I loved this conversation. I have one more question for you. It is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? That compassionate awareness is the foundation of transformational change. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for everything that you shared here, John. I love this conversation and I'm sure it won't be our last one. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.